Our sermon text this morning is Genesis 24. Genesis chapter 24, beginning with verse 1. This is God's word to us. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, see to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you'll be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I'm standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, drink and I will water your camels, let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master." Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She said, We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Then the young women ran and told her mother's household about these things. Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. 
Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me, he went to the man. And behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat. And he said, but he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. He said, speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master and he has become great. He has given me flocks, given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants and camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old. And to him, he has given all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell. But you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife from my son. I said to my master, perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, the Lord, before whom I have walked, will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife from my son, from my clan, and from my father's house. Then you'll be free from my oath when you come to my clan. And if they will not give her to you, you'll be free from my oath. I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if you... If now you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water, to whom I shall say, please give me a little water from your, well, from your jar to drink, and who will say to me, drink, and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebekah came out with her water jar on her shoulder, and she went down to the spring and drew water. And I said to her, please let me drink. And she quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, drink, and I will give your camels drink also. So I drank, and she gave the camels drink also. Then I asked her, whose daughter are you? She said, the daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her arms. Then I bowed my head and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, if you're going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her. Go. Let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, let the young woman remain with us a while, at least 10 days. After that, she may go. But he said to them, do not delay me. Since the Lord has prospered my way, send me away that I may go to my master. They said, let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent her away. Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant and his men, and they blessed Rebekah and said to her, our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. 
Then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahai Roy and was dwelling in the Negeb. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening, and he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who's that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It's my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things he had done. So let's go back to verse 38. <laughs> and, and the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah. And she, and she became his wife. And he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. This is God's word. You may be seated. Lord, you have recorded all of these things that Christ may be glorified. Glorify Christ in the preaching of your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, where does one go to meet a wife these days? (laughs) I'm guessing if I were to survey you, we would come up with answers like church, praise God, or college, or online apps, or work, or through friends, or if you were come from where I come from, you might say a family reunion. It's biblical, though, as, as we see here. And, and though a few of our more worldly answers, are some of you just getting that? Okay. <laughs> a, a few of our more worldly answers might include the watering hole. I'm guessing none of us would say a well, right? We would not say a well is the ideal place to meet a wife. And yet, biblically, The local well, rather a foreign well, is where the best wives come from. In our text this morning, the servant of Abraham goes to a Mesopotamian well looking for a wife for Isaac. Later on in Genesis, just a few chapters later, Jacob will meet his wife-to-be, Rachel, at a well. In Exodus, Moses meets his wife, Zipporah, at a well. The well... And the wife go hand in hand in Scripture, especially for those who are in covenant with God. But before we get to why that is so important, there are two angles of this morning's text that we need to look at. And and you can guess we're not going to read this text verse by verse or preach this text verse by verse. We already read it that way. So here's the two angles that we're going to look at. The, the, The first angle is Abraham's faith. We're going to examine the story of Abraham as we have been doing for 12 chapters now and how it reaches this sort of resolution here in the longest chapter in all of Genesis. Secondly, we're going to examine how God providentially works through prayer. All right, so those, those, those two ideas, you have Abraham's faith and God's providential working through prayer. And then we're going to come back to that big, canonical, whole Bible picture of the woman at the well. So those are your three parts, Abraham's faith, prayer and providence, and wives at wells. So part one, Abraham's faith. And here we are in chapter 24, at the very end of Abraham's life. Verse one says, Abraham is old. 
He was already old. Now he's old, old, well advanced in years. And Moses says, And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. Not just some things, all things. In other words, all that God had told Abraham that would happen for him has happened for him. He has received, at least in part, all of the promises that were due to him. He has the son of his marriage to Sarah. He has received these earthly blessings of old age and wealth and peace and good favor with his neighbors. He's received partially the land of promise. And Abraham, we get the sense, is ready to die here. Very much like Jesus before the cross. He's ready to go. Abraham is ready to die except for one last item on his checklist. He has to ensure that the line of promise continues. It can't just go to Isaac alone. It's got to go to Isaac's kids. And Isaac doesn't have kids because Isaac's not married. So Isaac needs a wife. And in verses 2 and 4, Abraham is very specific. Did you pick up on that? He's very specific about how this wife will be found. She's got to be from his tribe, his clan, his family, back in Mesopotamia. Why? Why can't his wife be Canaanite? There's plenty of women in Canaan. That would be much easier. But the answer to this goes way back to Genesis chapter 9. When Noah prophesied, when he's at that, that horrible incident at the tent, he then prophesied that Canaan, Ham's son, would serve Shem. Shem means the name. Shem is the son through which or through whom the line of the promise would continue. And here is Abraham, a Shemite from the Hebrew clan, and he's insisting that Isaac marry another Hebrew. But this is not just a Genesis 9 issue. It's also related to God's promises to Abraham. God promised Abraham that his offspring would inherit the land of Canaan. And Abraham has learned by now that God's promises do not come by human means. If he's learned anything, he must learn that lesson because that lesson is to be passed down to us. That is to say, Abraham must have learned by now that the promises that God has made will not be acquired by human strength, not by human cunning, not by political alliances. If God has promised the land to Abraham's offspring, then God will bring it about, not through politically convenient marriages to Canaanite women so that you can acquire the land that way, but through, God will do this through his strong arm. So to summarize then, if Isaac were to marry a Canaanite, there would be two problems. First, it would contradict Noah's blessing from Genesis chapter 9. Not good. Secondly, it would mix Abraham's land promise or God's land promise to Abraham with Canaanite politics. The land would go to the people who were partially Canaanite and partially Abraham's offspring. And that cannot be. So the wife must come from Shem's line. And then Abraham makes this quest even harder. Isaac's not allowed to go with you, he says. The servant must complete this mission on his own without Isaac. Abraham, the reason for this is Abraham's afraid that if he sends Isaac away, 
from the land, then he's endangering the promise. The, the, the offspring has to be connected to the land. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us now in chapter 24, but if you keep reading on in Genesis, you'll see Isaac's son Jacob leave the land to go find a wife, and he gets stuck for 20 years, and, and he almost doesn't make it back to the land. That's what Abraham is, is almost foreseeing here, and he doesn't want that to happen to Isaac. He wants to keep the offspring of the promise in direct contact with the land of the promise, so he insists that the servant has got to be the one to retrieve the wife. And both of these issues, the Hebrew wife and Isaac staying home, this is so important to Abraham that he demands the servant swear to him the most solemn oath possible, the hand under the thigh oath. What in the world is that? (laughs) Nobody knows exactly. Because, thank God, we stopped doing this a long time ago. We know this. We know this. The, the, the thigh, or in some translations, the hip. And if you can get the idea there, this is a euphemism for areas very close to the thigh and the hip. And so theories abound as to the significance of this very intimate oath. Some speculate it has to do with the covenant of circumcision. Something along the lines of, if I do not hold up my end of the oath, may I be cut off from the people of God. Some say it has something to do with the promised seed, the offspring, or swearing on your own posterity, your own children. Either way, this is the oath that Abraham insists upon, and so the servant is very hesitant about going through with this. He's got questions, namely, what if I find this woman and she won't come back? To which Abraham says, what I believe is the, the, the most important verse in this text. And that's the thing a lot. It's 67 verses. Look at verse 7. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house, and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall Take a wife for my son from there. So a couple observations here. First of all, Genesis is written by Moses. And Moses is almost certainly seeing his own mission to retrieve Israel from Egypt in the Exodus, in the book of Exodus. He's seeing himself in this story. Moses in Exodus is the hesitating servant who, on behalf of God's covenant with Abraham, goes to get Israel, the Lord's bride, from Egypt and bring her into the promised land where the Lord awaits. And Moses in the Exodus has nearly the same doubts as this servant does. What if Israel won't listen to me? What if Israel won't return with me? And yet the Lord promised Moses in Exodus, what did he tell him? I will be with you. That was his promise. Very much like Jesus as well. When Jesus sent his disciples out into the nations in that great commissioning to retrieve and gather the bride of Christ, he said the same thing. I will be with you. Verse 7 has massive implications for the rest of Scripture. But in the immediate context of this story, we see the steady progress of Abraham's faith. So you're seeing that you've got this big picture. God is with 
his own promises, and then here you have Abraham's faith progressing, growing, increasing. The faith of Abraham is a theme that has been ongoing since the very beginning of his calling. The Lord called him away from his family and his land to an unknown place, to an unknown land, and made these great promises to him. The promise of a child and nations and blessing and land. And as we've watched Abraham together, and it's been a journey, hasn't it? As we've watched him, we have seen fits and spurts of Abraham's growth in believing. Sometimes he's believing these promises. Sometimes he's doubting these promises and relying on his own strength. But then something happened. God finally fulfilled the promise of the child. Sarah had baby Isaac, and that seemed to seal it for Abraham. Now he believes nearly all the time. And that, that, that propelled him into this greater certainty. The fulfilled promise of the offspring seems to have transformed Abraham from a man who lives mostly according to the flesh to a man who lives mostly according to the spirit. He is not in glory yet. So this is like us being born again in Christ. He, he now lives mostly according to the Spirit, mostly according to the promises of God. And he has this great confidence in the Lord, doesn't he? Look at his confidence in verse 7. He will send his angel before you. You shall take a wife for Isaac there. Those two words, will and shall, they show his confidence, don't they? Abraham doesn't say, the Lord might go with you. He doesn't say, hopefully you'll find a wife there. He says, will, shall. The Lord will send his angel. You shall take a wife. There's an absolute certainty in Abraham's voice. He's certain of the things hoped for. This is what Hebrews calls faith. He's expressing the faith that God has born in him. And what's interesting, what I want you to see here, is just how this faith spreads. If we were to do an anatomy of faith, what happens when Abraham, the man of faith, who is saved by faith, proclaims his faith in God's promises to the servant. What happens? The servant believes. And then he begins to live by faith for the rest of the passage. This servant, after receiving the word from Abraham that the Lord will be with him, he obeys his master, he begins to pray, and he worships. Obedience, prayer, and worship, what do we call that? Those are all signs of inward faith expressed outwardly. As Abraham's faith increased, as we watched it from chapter 12 all the way to chapter 24, the effect is that it has come to have an impact on the faith of others, the faith of the servant. Which is why I want to ask you to think about your own faith in the Lord's promises. Is your faith increasing as well? Are you growing more and more certain has your faith increased such that what you believe about God's faithfulness overflows now into your interactions with others? Now, as we look at this, as we look at Abraham and the servant, it's certainly possible that this servant is already a believer to some degree. There's no doubt that he, 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 he took a big step in faith when he took part in that day of circumcision when all of Abraham's household men went under the knife. 
Nonetheless, up to this point, this unnamed servant has not been even mentioned in the story. The, sec- the, the, the text is silent about him until, until it's absolutely crucial that the gospel hope be passed on. And so at this point, if we're, if we're watching this, we're wondering what's going to happen. Will the promises die with Abraham? No. The promise is passed on through faith, through faith. That's what evangelism is. That's all it is. Passing on the hope that we have. Passing on the faith from one to another. And the biblical pattern goes like this. It begins with the word. Abraham heard the word, and then he believed. Like Abraham, we must first hear and believe that God is faithful and his promises are true. In the Christian life, that means hearing and believing that Jesus is the Messiah, that we are justified through his life and death and resurrection and ascension, and that in union with him, we have the Holy Spirit, freedom from sin, hope in the resurrection. That's the Christian faith. Those are our promises. Secondly, that inward faith is expressed in outward action. We see this with Abraham. Abraham obeyed the Lord when he told him to leave his homeland for the promised land. He obeyed the Lord when God said to circumcise his household. He obeyed the Lord when he said send Ishmael out into the wilderness. He obeyed the Lord when he told him to take Isaac up up the mountain. And then he showed his faith in, in chapter 23 through purchasing that plot of land for burial. He showed his hope outwardly. Lastly, the inward faith is communicated. So we believe, or we hear, we believe, we obey, and then we communicate it. The inward faith is communicated outwardly. Only after the servant had seen Abraham's faith grow bolder in action do we see Abraham then communicate that faith to the servant. Do you see that pattern? Does that mean we have to be perfect in faith to communicate the gospel? No. What I'm getting at, though, is that Abraham's faith is credible. It's credible. When Abraham went down to Egypt and he pawned his wife off as his sister, he didn't then go to Pharaoh and preach the good news of God's promises of protection. That would be what we would call hypocritical, isn't it? Nor did he do that with Abimelech. No, Abraham's evangelistic message to the servant comes along with a life that has become more and more visibly transformed by faith. Likewise with you and me. When we have seen the transforming power of the gospel in our own life, and when our hope in Christ is then expressed in joyful obedience, then that gospel hope begins to overflow in true evangelism. It's not, let me just put it in a pithy way. It's not so much that we should practice what we preach. Rather, we should preach what we practice. You see what I'm getting at? Preach what we practice. Practice it first. Don't let your witness physically and outwardly be awful and then tell someone Jesus loves you. Who wants that Jesus? 
Well, Abraham shows his confidence in the Lord, and then he communicates his confidence in the Lord. And the effect is that the servant believes, and off he goes to Mesopotamia to a city called Nahor to find a wife for Isaac. And it is here in Nahor that we begin to see that mysterious mixture of the servant's prayers and the providence of God. This is part two, if you're taking notes. Prayer and the providence of God. Servant gets to town, sets his camels down for a rest, and then prays this Extremely specific prayer, beginning in verse 12. And we need to be extremely careful here how we think about what's happening with this prayer and how we should apply it to our own lives. Because I know some of you have tried to get like specific like this, because I have. We need to be careful, though. There is an error on one side following the footsteps of, of the servant There's an error on one side that says something like, like Abraham's servant, whenever I have an important decision to make, I'm going to ask God for a sign. God, if it's your will that I move to Nevada, let me see a Nevada license plate drive by right now. First of all, it's not God's will for you to move to Nevada. That's why he made it a desert. And secondly... That's not how this passage is teaching us to pray, okay? The, the error on the other side, though, so there's, that's one error where everything's a sign. They're always looking for a sign. The error on the other side is to not ask the Lord for anything, to not pray at all, and just assume that because God is in charge of everything and everything is guided by God's sovereign hand, that prayer is a waste of time. Do you see the two ditches that we ought not fall into? Let's not fall into those ditches. Rather, let's carefully examine the prayer of this servant as it commingles with the providence of God. First, the servant prays, look at verse 12, he prays in Abraham's name. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, so he's, this is in Abraham's name, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. He's, what he's doing here is he's reminding God of who he is. Say, God, your name is Lord, Yahweh, because you're the covenant God of Abraham. You've made a covenant with Abraham. That is reminding God of all that he has promised Abraham, land, seed, blessing, and so on. And then look what the servant does. He ties his own success to Abraham's success and Abraham's relationship to God. Grant me success, he says. And what does that mean? By showing your love to Abraham. You see the connection? They're inseparable. So then everything that comes after that statement is the servant genuinely saying to the Lord, I'm seeking Abraham's good here. My success is bound up in Abraham's success. I want to see Abraham's name made great here. And Lord, you promised to make Abraham's name great. And he did. Now, how do we follow this instruction as Del Sarah Baptist Church? We have prayed four times today in our worship service. And at no point in any of our prayers did we ask God to fulfill his promises to Abraham. And none of us prayed in Abraham's name. Why? Well, because at this point in redemptive history, God has already done everything that he promised Abraham he would do. God's promises to Abraham have been fulfilled completely. Yes and amen in Jesus Christ. So we are now in a new covenant, a new age, the end of the ages, as the scriptures talk about it. And here's what prayer looks like now for us. It's similar. There are echoes. 
Just as Abraham promised his servant that the Lord would be with him, Christ has promised us that the Lord is with us. And just as the angel of the Lord, who is the Holy Spirit in this case, just as the Spirit guided the servant in prayer, the, servant, the Spirit rather guides you and me in our prayers. And just as the servant prayed for Abraham's good, we pray for Christ's glory, for his good, that his name would be made great. And that's what the Spirit does in us. He glorifies Christ in us. It's what it means when we say, what we read in John 14, to pray in Jesus' name. That means we're praying for his glory, his success, if you will. And as Christians, our success is bound up in Christ's name and his glory. And that gets us back to that John 14 passage. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. Why does Jesus say that? He says it because the glory or the Father will be glorified in the Son. So we pray in Jesus' name as Abraham, or as the servant prayed in Abraham's name. What that means is when we're thinking about prayer and you pray dumb prayers that are for your own worldly glory, like God help me to win the lottery. God has no obligation or interest in answering that prayer for you because that doesn't inherently bring glory to Christ. But when your prayer is for Christ's sake, when your prayer is such that the Father may be glorified in the Son, those are the prayers that Jesus promises you will be answered. So so the prayer is like this, Lord, may I be more bold in my faith so that Christ's name would be made great in my life. Lord, Lord, you have said to me to make the best use of my time. Help me not to squander my time so that Christ would be glorified in my life. You see that? We, we pray according to those things which Christ says bring glory to him. And Jesus will answer those prayers. Servant prays in Abraham's name. But the servant also prays according to the promises that are given to Abraham. That's what we see when he asks for help finding this wife, right? So if you're thinking, okay, I need to help pray that God would give me a wife. Well, you've not been promised a wife. Isaac was. You haven't been. So be careful there. But here, let me show you. The servant knows that the Lord promised Abraham that a nation would come from him through the offspring. Right? That's a guarantee. A nation's coming from Abraham. A nation's coming through Isaac. Guarantee that's a promise that's going to happen. So Isaac is going to need a wife to help make that happen. And the servant knows that. He believes that. Abraham taught him that. Therefore, the servant's prayer is according to that promise. Lord, you said you'd make a nation out of Isaac. Help me to find a wife for Isaac. He's praying the promise back to God. Likewise, our prayers should be in accordance with God's promises. That's the pattern we're looking for here. In Christ's name, God's promises. Our prayers have to be in accordance with God's promises. God told us, let me give you an example. God told us, he promised us, that the power of sin was defeated at the cross. That's a promise. It's a guarantee that you have. So our prayer should be, Lord, I know that at the cross, Christ defeated the power of sin over my flesh. 
So help me to fight sin so that Christ may be glorified in my life. Do you see how it works? The word tells us, the word tells us also that the Spirit has been given to us to transform us into Christ's likeness. So we pray, Lord, may the fruit of the Spirit be seen in me. Help me to be joyful today. Help me to be patient today. In Jesus' name, for his glory. Because you said you would do this. You see how it works? That's all the servant is doing. He's praying God's promises back to him. And here's what's so fascinating about this passage. This is where we get to the providence part. Even as the servant is opening his mouth, and he says this two times in the text, even as I was opening up my mouth and praying this extremely specific prayer about the woman he's seeking for Isaac, look at verse 15. Rebecca's already left the house. You see that? And then as he finishes praying, sure enough, according to the will of God, she fetches him water and she waters the camels, exactly as he asked. And here's what you need to see here. God had already begun to answer the prayer before it was prayed. Rebecca was already the answer to the prayer. But it was not until the prayer was prayed that the prayer could be answered. You understand how that works? Me either. <laughs> it is this mysterious commingling of God's great sovereignty in our responsibility to pray. And it has everything to do, everything to do with the Holy Spirit in us. It is the spirit with this believing servant that leads him to pray according to God's will. And that is the prayer that God answers. And the same spirit in us also prays according to God's will. And those are the prayers that God answers in us and through us and for us. Amen. Isn't it good that you're released from having to guess what God's will is? The spirit in us guides us. So pray for Christ's glory according to God's promises with the power of the Spirit in you, and you will see prayer answered again and again and again in your life. And hold on to see what we do then, because we'll get there. Well, the scene unfolds this way. Once the servant sees his prayer for Abraham's sake answered, he believes. He believes that Rebekah is the one because it's exactly as he prayed for. And then he gives her all these wonderful gifts, and then he worships God. Look at verse uh, 26. The man bowed his head. And you could see in this passage this progression of bowing. It's, first it's praying, and then it's bowing, and then it's crumbling to the earth because he's just in awe of what the Lord is doing here. But the man bowed his head, and he worshiped the Lord. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who is not forsaken his steadfast love. He's reminding God of that same promise that you would, you would love Abraham, you'd be faithful to Abraham. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. Who gets the glory here? The Lord does, right? All I did was just follow you, Lord. So he's not, wow, man, I found a wife. I'm a great servant. No, it's, Lord, you led me. Thank you. You did what I asked you to do. And again, even in his praise, he's praising God in Abraham's name. Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master, Abraham. God, you remembered Abraham. Abraham, Abraham, Abraham. Because of you, Lord. 
And I just want to point something out here. Going back to how we pray. When you pray and God answers your prayers, take a yes for a yes. Okay? And praise God for his answered prayer. So so when you pray, for instance, as, as we do, God, open up the door for me to share the gospel with my neighbor. And then your neighbor the next day out of the blue says, hey, why do you go to church on Sundays? Answer him. (laughs) Answer him. And then thank God for glorifying Christ and answering your prayers. Follow the servant's pattern here. Follow the servant's example for us. Well, the servant sees the answered prayer. He believes that God has answered prayer. He worships the Lord. And then off Rebecca goes, running for home. Look at verse 28. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about all these things. So the Lord has answered the servant's prayers thus far, but it's not over yet. He's got to get the blessing from, from Rebecca's family. And that's what we see happening next. The servant makes sure that Rebecca and her dad Bethuel and her brother Laban, greedy Laban, who we'll learn about later, brother Laban know that Abraham is wealthy. Rebecca's going to be taken care of. The, the servant wants to be sure that everybody in the family knows Abraham has been blessed by God. Rebecca will be taken care of. And so the servant is welcomed into the house with open arms. He tells the entire story again from start to finish. And Laban and Bethuel are listening, and sure enough, they believe too. You see that? That just the traveling of Abraham's faith to the servant, to Laban and Bethuel, they all believe that this is all from the Lord. Look at verse 51. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go. Only kind of don't go yet. And, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. And then yet again, because, because the servant recognizes God has answered his prayers, he worships the Lord. Look at verse 52. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. You see the pattern? The servant listens, he believes, he obeys, he prays. God answers his prayer. He believes and he worships. God continues to answer the servant's prayer. The servant continues to believe and he continues to worship. And then he continues in obedience. Obedience is the next thing we see. Look at verse 55. Laban and his mother, Laban, we'll see later on, likes to stall. He and his mother try to stall that departure date. But the servant stays the course, doesn't he? His allegiance is to Abraham. you got to let me go now. you got to let me go now. No delay. His allegiance is to Abraham. He does not fear man. He will not be swayed by the fear of man here. He is the righteous servant. And again, the Lord continues to answer his prayer. Laban and, and, and mom ask for Rebecca's opinion. Rebecca says, let's go. And then look at the blessing that she receives in verse 60. And I believe here in verse 60, this is the Lord's continued confirmation that his hand is in all of this. Because look what they say to Rebecca. And they blessed Rebecca and said to her, our sister, May you become thousands of ten thousands. May your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. What's she saying? What are they saying to her? Be fruitful and multiply. You you get the fruitful and multiply blessing. And have dominion. All of the above. God's own voice from Genesis 1 is echoed here in their blessing. And we don't even know if they're really believers or not. But the Lord is speaking through them. And not only do we see God's 
uh, echoing of Genesis 1 here, but we also see a foreshadowing of the church, that institution that will be set up by Christ, which the gates of death cannot prevail against. You see that? May your offspring possess the gates of those who hate him. Death hates you. And Christ's church will prevail over the gates of death. And off they go, the servant and the bride and lots of camels. And they head back to the land of promise. Meanwhile, this is just great storytelling from Moses. Meanwhile, verse 62 says that the entire time, this is how I'm reading it, the entire time that all of that has been taking place up in Nahor, Isaac has been in a place called Beir Lahai Roy. Do you remember that story from Ishmael's mom, Hagar? That place where Isaac's been hanging out while God's been taking care of things in Mesopotamia is the name Beir Lahai Roy, which means the well of the living one who sees me. The well of provision. The well where God providentially takes place of those that he loves or takes care of those that he loves. That's where Isaac's been. Don't miss the names, even though we don't know Hebrew. Don't miss the names. They're important. When you see a name, it's probably important. When you see a place, it's very important. That's where Isaac's been this entire time that God has been taking care of his need for a wife. And from there, as the servant and the bride are traveling back to the, to the Negev, Isaac is simultaneously traveling back to the same place, and they didn't have cell phones. They didn't know that they were both going to the same region. And providentially, here, we get our little moment of romance in this long passage. In verse 63, Isaac is meditating or praying, as some translations say, out in a field, which is to say he's seeking the Lord here, and he lifts up his eyes. Look at verse 63. He lifts up his eyes. You remember what that means? He lifts up. That's our textual clue that whatever happens now, as we're reading, is a glimpse of God's promises being fulfilled. He lifts, Isaac lifts up his eyes and he sees his wife to be. And the bride, at the same time, lifts up her eyes. This is almost like shot for shot. You can see the camera, can't you? It's a beautiful romance. And she sees, with her lifted up eyes, her husband-to-be. And they get married, and then the sting of death is overcome, which is pretty cool. Look at verse 67. And Isaac was comforted after the death of his mother. Somehow, in the scriptures, a wedding will take away the sting of death. So out of a 67-verse chapter, big chapter, biggest chapter I've ever read out loud, only four of these verses involve interaction between a husband and wife. Only four. What that tells us is that this marriage between Isaac and Rebekah is more of an afterthought than anything else. Even though the heading of your passage, not inspired, but the top of it says Isaac and Rebekah, the passage isn't really about Isaac and Rebekah, is it? Imagine you, you go to the movies to watch a romantic comedy where the, the protagonists don't even meet each other or know about each other until the last five minutes of the movie. You'd say, well, that wasn't a romantic comedy, and you'd be right. It's not. This isn't either. It's not about Isaac and Rebekah. This passage is actually about how God's covenant with Abraham is borne out in the ministry 
of the servant, the man whose name we never even get. The unnamed servant is the most faithful, trusting, obedient person we've ever seen in the Bible up to this point. And he sets in place a pattern that will be repeated throughout the scriptures that climaxes with Jesus Christ, the faithful servant of the Lord who entrusts his own life to the Lord and obeys the Lord and leaves the place of his master for a foreign land and he intercedes before the Lord and according to the sovereign hand of God, he gets the bride and brings her safely back into the promised land. Turn with me to John chapter 4. Second sermon today. It's, it's, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I want you to see it. John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, Jesus, the servant of the Lord, goes to a place called Samaria. And where does he go? He goes to a well. Jesus goes to a well to meet a woman. Now, every other time in all the Bible, this ends with a wedding. So a careful Bible reader opening up their Bible to John chapter 4 will begin to hear bells. But this woman at the well is different. This isn't exactly like when the servant met Rebekah, who had never known a man. And it's not exactly like when Jacob met Rachel, who had never been with a man. And it's not exactly like when Moses met Zipporah, who had never been with a man or been married before. This is different. This woman's different. This man is different. But it's so similar. We've got to know something's up in John 4. Well, like Rebecca, this woman goes to the well to get some water. Big surprise, that's what you do at Wells. And like Rebecca, she's not expecting to meet a man there. She's had plenty of trouble with men in her life. But the man she does meet there, the man who is there waiting, he is looking for a bride. Only it's different than the way that Isaac and Jacob and Moses were looking for a bride. So Jesus' proposal to this woman is a little bit different also. He doesn't say, marry me. He doesn't give her a lot of stuff and say, come back to my house. He says to the woman in verse 14, I will give you living water springing up to eternal life. And he is most certainly talking about the Holy Spirit. The Spirit who brings faith, the Spirit who glorifies Christ, the Spirit who brings the church into union with Christ, very much like a bride is united to her groom. Well, the woman and Jesus in John chapter 4 continue to talk, and what happens is Jesus reveals her own sinful history to her. He knows her secrets, he knows her history, and yet he doesn't condemn her. And what's comforting to us as we read this, and we're beginning to see things coming together, we begin to see these are the people that Jesus came for. This is the bride that Jesus came for. People with sordid histories. Sinners like this woman. And as Jesus and this woman talk, she's drawn in further. They discuss the theological differences between Jews and Samaritans, and then they find some common ground. The common ground between the two 
is that both Jews and Samaritans are waiting for Messiah. She says she is awaiting the Christ, to which Jesus says in verse 26, I'm he. And what happens next confirms that this is a bride at the well story. Because the same way that Rebecca ran back to her family, the same way that Rachel ran back to tell her family, and the same way that Zipporah and her sisters all went back to tell her family about the man at the well, this Samaritan woman goes into the city to tell everyone about the man at the well. But rather than the next scene in the story ending with a wedding, something different happens. This woman announces to all the city that the Christ has arrived, the Messiah has come, and they believe. Look at John chapter 4, verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. We've heard for ourselves. We know this is the savior of the world. And what John is doing masterfully, what he's showing us, and the way that he's written this is that all these believers, by faith, became betrothed to Christ. By the Spirit, by the living water, they believed. And by the Spirit, they were brought into union with Christ. All of them. Because you see the point of all marriage, from Adam and Eve to Isaac and Rebekah to Moses and Zipporah and Solomon and the Shulamite woman and his songs, all marriages ultimately point us to that one true marriage, the one true union between Christ and the church. Christ, the obedient servant, has come to the well to retrieve the bride and bring her into the land of promise. So lift up your eyes. Lift up your eyes, Rebecca. Lift up your eyes, Samaritan woman. Lift up your eyes, church, and see Christ Jesus coming on the horizon. The bridegroom is coming for his bride. By the Spirit's power, receive him in faith. And in the last day at his return with our veil removed, we will enjoy the wedding supper with him. Amen.